So this is the last sermon in Ecclesiastes, and it is true, God has brought us through so much life as we have walked through this book over the past year or so, as we have contemplated living in light of dying. And in almost 15 years at Grace, we've gone through uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Ruth, now Ecclesiastes, Malachi, Matthew, Acts, Romans, Philemon, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 and 3 John. And this is not just about going through Bible books. I mean, it's, it's tough for me to end uh, an expositional study through a book because I get so used to it and, and I'm so familiar with it and I love it so much. And this is not about just going through books in the Bible where we say, well, we got another one down, now let's go get another one. Uh, This is about what the Spirit of God does in our hearts and lives as we systematically and expositionally read the Word and hear it explained and applied. Today, two verses. It's the last two in Ecclesiastes, and and really it, it does form the end, it forms the conclusion of the matter, as Solomon puts it. And it's interesting how it comes. It's like, wow, this is the ending, and it is big. The Masoretes, who preserved the Hebrew text from around 8700 to 1200 BC, had had the public readers of Scripture actually repeat verse 13 because they didn't want uh, to end on on a negative note. So read verse 13, then 14, then go back to 13. So you know, it's not negative at the end. They did the same thing with Isaiah. They did the same thing with Lamentations. Well, we're going to take the bare word as it stands today. We're going to do verse 13, then verse 14. We will end with verse 14 because it drives us to a good God. Solomon has been pointing us to God throughout, and now he is very strongly guiding us to the sovereign good God and telling us, This is what God requires. This is what he wants. And this is what he's going to do. And and we're going to see pointed out very clearly everyone's ultimate duty before God. In contrast to brief life that seems to be a vapor, this is what it means to be human. These two verses tell us what it means to be human. Now, Ecclesiastes has taught us well. We clearly see life is difficult from our own experience, but also as the Word explains it, and that we see that our understanding is limited. We see that injustice and oppression happen far too often, and we see that death eventually knocks on the door. And you know how we began Ecclesiastes, right? Again, it was March of 2020, but it was, we're not in control, and only God knows. Now we end Ecclesiastes with, we're not in control, and only God knows. It, though it doesn't end in despair. There's not a note of despair. This is not a negative ending. Judgment, and we'll see this near the end today, this is not a negative ending. This is a note of hope. This is the pinnacle. This is a high note. This is absolute truth, that people are to fear God and keep his commandments. This is what we're being told. 
So let's go ahead and start at verse 13. When you focus there, it just tells us very simply the end of the matter. All's been heard. Here's the big conclusion. Here's the wrap. And what I want you to notice is God wants you to see something before you do something. So often we come to the Bible and we're like, so what am I supposed to do right away? Just relax and see something, then do something. Two points are being summarized here regarding God and his word. Two imperative commands regarding God's greatness and his glory in the word. And then it ends in verse 14 with one final crucial point, a statement of fact. But we'll focus first on verse 13, the two imperatives. It is fear and keep. Fear and keep. The Hebrew emphasizes God and commands. The object of fear is God. The object of keep is his commands. And then verse 14, there'll be a concluding statement. So we're going to look at these two imperatives first, though. The imperatives in verse 13. The first imperative command is fear God. The second one is keep his commands. And so let's look at the first one first. Fear God. It's an imperative command that really does put us in our place, doesn't it? The idea of, with this settled, and if you say, I'm going to fear God, we don't just get put in our place. Everything in life gets put in proper place. And I know what some of you might be thinking when you hear these words, fear God. Like, this is confusing, <laughs> Wait a minute, this doesn't seem to jive with a God of love. I'm supposed to fear him? Wait a minute, how does that fit with a God of love? Michael Reeves from England, and he has helped me um, greatly with something he has written as he has really tried to cut through the confusion and help believers rejoice in the paradox that the gospel both frees you from fear and then gives you fear. That it frees you from crippling fears, but it gives you a delightful fear. That for Christians, the fear of God does not mean being afraid of God. We think of all the fears we have in life, and then we're told to fear God, and we're like, well, it must be just like that, where we're terrified. And I love the way that that Reeves puts it, he said, Scripture has hefty surprises for us as we go through the Bible and see what it really says about fear and fearing God. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 11, let me just give you an example, okay? Describing the Messiah. Describing the Messiah indwelt by the Spirit, here's what we read, that this, verses 1 through 3, among other things, says this, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is something God likes and that his delight is in it. Now you think about sinful fear, that's a fear that runs from God, runs as fast as you can away from God. Godly fear runs to God. It's like Spurgeon put it. It is fear that leans towards the Lord because of his very goodness, because he is good. So right fear delights in God. It is not fright, it is faith. 
when you fear God, you realize how great he is. You realize how awesome he is. You realize how unchanging and unlimited his power and justice are. Nehemiah 1.11 speaks of delighting to fear God's name. The idea here is worship. The closest way I can describe this fear commanded is worship. Fear is this total reverence of the preeminent sovereign God. Godly fear, as we know the Bible tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. And what does it do? What does godly fear do? It delivers you from wickedness. It delivers you from self-righteousness. As Ecclesiastes has told us, it, it leads you to hate sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises of God, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. When you fear God, you worship the sovereign God. As the Old Testament tells us, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him. Literally bow down before him all the earth. When you fear God, you're acknowledging his total greatness, his total worthiness to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is not cowering fear. This is delight in God. This is what I would like to call reverent submissiveness. Worshipful obedience. One writer put it this way, this is not looking at an offended God with fear, but at a reconciled God with reverential love. Reverential love. Habakkuk 2.13 says, the people's toil only for the fire. The nations weary themselves all for nothing. It is a very different thing to be under a good master, to be under a good God, to be under a good master to whom you matter and whom whatever what you do matters. He knows everything. He's your creator. He is the sovereign savior. He knows it all. And so if you sincerely love God, you worship him, which equals fearing him. We surrender to his sovereign sufficiency as we have focused upon this year. The issue that crops up immediately for us is we like to make our life preeminent. That it's about my desires, my dreams, my ambitions, even my responsibilities. And what you'll notice as you go through these verses is every duty you have, you have to God first. Fear him. There are a lot of things that get promised that cannot be delivered in life. A lot of things that get promised. But God exceeds all expectations. He's able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He is great. And so fearing him breeds actions that please him. You want to please him. You want to honor him. You're like Job, in Job as described in Job 1.1. He feared God and turned away from evil. When you love God, you worship him, you actually don't want to do what displeases him. Fearing the Lord is the consequence of knowing him as he reveals himself in his word and prescribing a life that pleases him. Fearing God is bringing him into everything in your life, welcoming him into everything in your life, living in awareness of 
God and who he is. And, and Jesus made it clear in John 14 that loving God equals fearing him. You do what God requires because you love him. The, one person put it this way, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence. I love that. Affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law leads us to the second imperative of keeping God's commands. So you have this first imperative of fearing God, worship him, which leads to the second imperative, keep his commands. Still in verse 13, fear God, worship him, and then keep his commandments. Only time in Ecclesiastes that God's commands are are mentioned, and it's not because it's like an afterthought, oh, by the way, P.S., it's because this is such a big deal. It's why it is right here. God wants something done. And the order of the two points, fear and keep, are crucial. It's key. Your choices flow from your worship. Your knowledge of God leads to obedience. It's not the other way around. So you keep, and, and the word keep is a strong word. It, it's kind of a picture of a gatekeeper or a, or a bodyguard even or, or a doorkeeper. And, and it's someone who's watching and preserving and observing and attending to and, and even almost beware, give heed. I'm going to defend something. This is keeping, keep holding on to the word of God. Like Paul says uh, in, to the Philippians, we're holding fast the word of God life, where you receive it and you believe it and you order your life around it. Keep God's commands. Keep his commands. The overriding responsibility to abide in the teaching and do what it says. The sincere believers obey the word. You could sum it up like that. To obey would be to worship God with your will but also your, your ways, the, what, what you're doing in life, where you, you're confessing his greatness, you are, you're serving him with, with all your heart, and, and you're doing what the revealed will of God says in the written word of God, and you realize it is it binding on me, I, I must do it in the Spirit's power. Every person needs to evaluate their relationship with God in light of God's word. I mean, when was the last time you submitted to it even when you didn't feel like it? Because God's word is always pushing up against our pride. We want things a certain way in life. When was the last time you submitted to the word of God even when you didn't feel like it? We don't like to be confronted and we don't like the word of God to confront us. What we try to do then is change what it means to fit my view. And if we're going to be honest, we would need to admit we're actually selfish Bible readers. We want an individualistic, moralistic application just for me. We want to see ourselves in scriptures. We want to hear about us. And we get man-centered versus kingdom of God-centered. But what you, when you open your Bible up, you realize the Bible isn't man-centered. The Bible doesn't elevate man. The Bible elevates the triune God. The Bible lifts up Christ. We are to see and savor him. That we are all sheep in God's world. And we need to let the word drive us in the direction that God intends. 
and the outcome that he ordains. And God's word is going to continually humble your pride. It's going to happen. If you sincerely come to it and really want to obey his commands, it will adjust your priorities in life. It will confront and offend your sin. It, it will challenge your thinking, but it will also comfort your heart and it will also give you confidence. Because scripture alone has supernatural transforming qualities and capabilities. God uses his word to change us by his spirit. All of our ministries need to be word-saturated. That, that being filled with the spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is, is equal to letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in Colossians 3.16. And that we know that we are transformed and renewed by the word of God. And that if you're a Christian today, there won't be any transformation or renewal in your life without the word of God. God has vested his power in the word. I run into so many Christians who are like, I feel like I am sinning so much. I feel like I am failing so much. And I haven't, I haven't been in the word for weeks. You know, I feel so weak. You need to trust God. Confess your sins. Be in the word. Be in prayer. You will not be transformed or grow without it. God's word powers our discipleship. It powers our evangelism. And what you need to do, if you're going to take this really seriously and say, I want to fear God and obey his commands, that I need to see the beauty of God and his word. That God is beautiful and he's given us a beautiful word and I want to let it work. I, I want to realize I'm poor, but the Bible is precious to me. It is powerful. It is perfect. And I'm floundering all over the place and the Bible anchors my soul. The Bible anchors me. You know when that happens in your life? And, and you know, even on a daily basis, and you come to the Word, and you like get your heart defrosted because it's frozen, and you realize sin just sinks you like quicksand, but that the Word of God rescues your soul. It, it reforms you. It changes you. This is what God does. I was reading last week in 2 Kings 13 about a dead corpse being thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as the dead corpse hit the bones, it, it came to life. <laughs> there was some power going on there. And I, the thought just hit me, our souls get revived by the perfect word of God like that, like dead bones hitting the, uh, dead corpse hitting the bones of Elijah. Because God does something, and, and what it takes, though, is time in your life where you get God's word into your life, where you put in the work, that you, you schedule it, that you... You get your family and friends in on, the, on, on it. You, you, you want your heart to be drenched with the perfect word of God. I don't think it's so much as getting into the word as letting the word get into you. Like, let it get into your pores. Like, drench yourself, fill yourself, flood yourself with the Bible. Not just little bits, not just... Itsy bitsy, you know, verses of the day or portion of a verse for the day, but lots of it. Last week we saw that the word of God is like goads. It's like, it's like nails. It leads you and drives you in the right direction, but also gives you something to hold on to in life. The truth gives hooks to hold on to in life. You get God's word into your pores. Get it into all the nooks and crannies. 
And God wants you to find pleasure in his word because he is beautiful and he has given you words of truth to delight your heart. It delights the heart of a believer to read the word of God. I mean, God is not a miser. He didn't, he didn't like say, I'll give you little crumbs of bread. He gave you a, a book of delight about him. He says in Isaiah 55, my word is so perfect, it will accomplish what I sent it for. You need to feed on delightful words. You think about the people you know that hate God, that, that say the Bible is outdated, the Bible is irrelevant, the Bible is boring. It's because they think it's ugly. They don't see it as a beautiful thing because their, their life is a mess. They, they see it as oppressive. You see it as a thing of beauty, more precious than silver and gold because those who are born again are, are, are like pulled by the magnetic pull of the Bible over and over again where you say, I want to immerse myself in the word of God. It is beautiful. It is delightful to my soul. And I want to come with childlike faith once again to have it opened up for me. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. You should open your Bible and see a thing of beauty. It is perfect. It towers over all else. And what God is telling us here is that this is our life. Fear God, worship him, and, and keep his commands. O obey him, obey his word, obey his written word. This is the whole duty of man. That's what verse 13 tells us. The whole duty of man, everyone's ultimate duty of all mankind. Interesting, but the Hebrew doesn't have the word duty in it. So what this reads is the whole of everyone. This is the whole of everyone. And elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, you see this phrase, the whole of man. It's a Hebrew idiom for everybody. What it means is this applies to everyone. This is what it means to be human, folks. This is what it means to be human. Worship God and obey his word. Acknowledge him in worship. Obey his revealed written word. It's, it's not just a duty. It's, it literally should be an attribute that, that describes you. This is why it says that the duty isn't in there. The word duty. We put it in our translations to kind of maybe fill in the gap a little bit, but I'll tell you, it, it's not just a duty. It's, it's an attribute that is a defining essence of people. And the Bible does this in different places. In Psalm 109, uh, you see these words in the Hebrew, I am prayer. It just, the, the psalmist is saying, I am devoted to prayer, and it's actually become like a descriptor of my life. Psalm 120, you see the words, I am peace. Literally, I am peace. Not in your English translation, but in the Hebrew. In Job 8, 9, you see these words, we are yesterday. And the idea is, that's the very essence that describes mankind, and, and mankind's very essence of description is worship God and obey him. There's your life. There's your whole existence. Summed up very perfectly by God. It's the answer to the, to the question. In chapter 1, verse 3, what advantage or profit does a man have in all his work that he does under the sun? There's your answer. You get God. He gives the answer at the end of the book. The prophet is in fearing him 
as the defining characteristic of your life, worshiping him as the defining idea of your life, worshipful obedience as the definer of who you are. Wouldn't that be cool to be known as worshipfully obedient believers? One person said, the advantage is not in your achievement apart from God, but your connection to God, with God. Another said, mankind's rebellion against God proudly looks to self-generated wisdom to construct paradise on earth, confidently believing himself to be in possession of the correct agenda in life. Boy, how wrong we are. God has the correct agenda for life. It resides in him. He's revealed it for us in macro, in the word of God. It's to be applied in micro, in our lives. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 11, it said God set eternity in our hearts. That doesn't mean that every human really wants to seek after God. It's telling us that God has made us for an eternal purpose. But because of the fall, because of sin, we seek satisfaction in all the wrong places. And, and we find that only the Christian longs to be with Christ. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for, our, for yourself, O Lord. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The Bible tells us no one seeks for God. Everyone runs from God. But what the Bible also tells us beautifully is that God seeks and saves the lost. Christ said that, I'm going to seek and save the lost. One of the primary errors of the Enlightenment era, a big mistake that spilled over into every time and into our time, is the idea that man, by unaided human reason, can work his way to God. That's a lie. It can't happen that way. That's a pagan idea. Jesus himself said, I, I draw you to myself. You guys, we can't even crawl to him apart from him. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We are made in God's image. It's been marred by sin. I said last week, we're made by God, we're unmade by sin, but we're only remade in Christ. Only Christ can remake a person. And even though Solomon saw it only from afar off, he didn't see the full light of the gospel being revealed in Christ. He didn't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ like we can. He saw it from afar. He saw the promise of the gospel. And when you come to these words, you see this twofold avenue, really, for joy in your life. You want joy in your life? Then acknowledge the greatness of God and worship him, fear him. And acknowledge the unchanging authority of his word. Keep his commands. Do what he says. It's the whole duty of man. It's, it's, it's nothing else matters in life, really. Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, here it is, to fear the Lord your God. You need to do that. To walk in all his ways, do that. Love him. Serve him with all your heart and all your soul. There's your ultimate purpose. There's your chief end. Obey him. Obey him. 
I've got a command that you need to obey. Found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Here's a sample. Here's a command. Probably the biggest command of God. 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment. Your ears should perk up. God's commanding something. I'm supposed to keep his commands. What am I supposed to do? Here's what it says. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And those of you that just said, check, check the box. I already did that. You're wrong. This is for you to keep believing in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian right now, and you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ, you need to obey God's command that you should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the sinless savior, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Believe that he died for your sins in your place on the cross, shed his blood. But if you're a Christian today, you need to keep God's command and keep believing on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the sinless savior, the good shepherd of your life. So two imperatives that are absolutely crucial Fear God, worship him, and keep his commands, obey his word. But I want us to look at the implied response to that and the reason for that in verse 14. It's a statement of fact. Fix your eyes on verse 14. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's your reason for fear and keep. There is an ultimate sovereign judge over all. We know injustice is prevalent, far too prevalent. We know oppression is far too prevalent. Now Solomon's going to conclude with a reminder of God's justice, and it's going to lead you to fear him and keep his commands. It's a warning. Every hidden thing will be decided by the jury of God's judgment. He will pronounce a verdict. And I, all I can say is Solomon is tightening the screws here. The hidden things will not escape God's assessment. Yes, rejoice. Yes, remember. And fear. Reverently. Obey. Death comes to everyone, but so does judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. God will bring every act into judgment. Unbelievers are going to appear at the great white throne judgment. We see it in Revelation 20. There's a scene. If you want to turn there in your Bibles to Revelation 20, and you'll see this sobering scene. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and heaven and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you can go home and say he was preaching fire and brimstone today. Now I was just reading you the Bible. Unbelievers will appear before Christ at the great white throne judgment, and believers will stand before Christ at the 
judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment. People debate the timing. Uh, 2 Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. People debate the timing. All we know is God knows exactly when it's going to be. Some say the great right throne is before the millennium. Others say that the judgment seat of Christ is after the millennium. Some people say it's all the same judgment. All I can tell you is there will be a judgment seat. There will be a place. It's called, the, uh, by the way, the, the judgment seat of Christ is called the Bema seat, which is the official seat of a judge. Herod built a structure resembling a throne at Caesarea where you could watch the games and give uh, speeches to the people. There is a judgment seat of Christ. Paul is alluding directly to his Old Testament understanding of the day of judgment where God's throne becomes the ultimate judgment seat. In Judaism, uh, there was much to say about the day of judgment before God's throne. So you have Paul, you even have John in Revelation being heavily influenced by their understanding of the throne of God being where the judgment would happen. But also, their belief that Christ is God and King who sits on that throne of judgment. How should you view final judgment if you're a Christian today, if you're a believer in Jesus? How should Christians view final judgment? You should not fear it if you are a Christian. Those in Christ need not fear it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It matters immensely if you're a believer or an unbeliever. Your sin was put on Christ at the cross if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, your sin is on you and you will face final judgment. The unbeliever's eternal punishment will be on the day of judgment, a, a time of settling accounts. The believer need not fear because they will be rewarded for faithful service and go into their eternal rest. But every time you think seriously about heaven and hell, it changes your life. R.C. Sproul said, modern man bets his eternal destiny that there is no final judgment. That's always a bad bet, a fatal bet. God's holiness demands executing perfect justice on the final day. His eternal purpose of redemption from Genesis to Revelation will be fulfilled. And you have to ask the question, what's going to happen to those who die denying the truth of the gospel? What will their rejection of the truth mean for them? I know we don't live in a land of tornadoes, at least not in California much. Maybe a whirlwind every once in a while, but if I picture an incoming tornado that's right upon you and it's approaching, and it's terrifying, and that is a terrifying day. That would be what it's going to be like is a terrifying day of judgment because every unbeliever is on a collision course with the day of reckoning, the great white throne judgment. Romans calls it the day of wrath. Jude calls it the judgment of the great day. Paul preached it in Acts 17 and said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in justice by a man whom he has appointed and he has given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. When he said that, some sneered. Some said, we will hear you again. And some said, I believe. Which one are you? Are you sneering? Are you saying maybe later? Or are you the one who will believe now? 
because there will come a day where God will hold court and all the world will be on trial and he will open books and present a case and every lost sinner will be judged and God will pronounce a just verdict and every unbeliever will be condemned to hell. And that final courtroom scene that was described in Revelation 20, the highest court in heaven and on earth, the supreme court of the universe with one lawgiver and one judge and every lost sinner will take his stand before the divine judgment seat and every unbeliever will have his day before the Lord Jesus Christ. And irrefutable evidence will be presented by God himself and there will be no rebuttal, no defense, no advocate. And there will be no miscarriage of justice, no appeal, no parole, only perfect judgment. How should that affect you today if you are a believer? First, you should be humbled by that truth. You should be humbled by it. Without God's grace, you would suffer torment. The difference between you and the condemned is Jesus. Everyone deserves condemnation to be cast into the lake of fire because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you're a Christian, God took your many sins and removed them, as we sang today, as far as the east is from the west and credited to you perfect righteousness and covered you by his blood and your sins will never again be brought up. And there's no room for boasting, just grateful worship, just waking up every day and saying, thank you, Jesus and going to sleep every night and saying, thank you, Jesus, because I have no merit except him who lived in perfect obedience to the law and died for a lawbreaker like me. Thank you, Lord, that Romans 8.1 tells me there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8.39 tells me there, that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I cherish my eternal salvation in Christ. Consider the sins that have been forgiven you, the sacrifice offered to take away your sin and then walk humbly before your God. Be humbled by it. But also, you need to proclaim this truth. Don't just be humbled by it. Proclaim it. Final judgment should stir you up to preach the gospel. There are many outside of God's kingdom under just wrath those outside of Christ are in danger, mortal danger. Exhort them to receive this salvation purchased by Christ. This is an urgent need. This is like you, you gotta go to everyone and share the love of God in the cross of Christ. How shall they escape if they neglect so great a salvation? This is a mandatory command to keep and to fear God, to obey his commands. You go into all the world and preach repentance before God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, perchance, would use you as he opens the eyes of the once blind, that they might embrace the truth in Christ rather than facing his wrath at final judgment. Just live now in awe of God, the good God, who will justly pour out awful retribution. I think this calls for silence before a holy God. awestruck to call attention at this moment to God's approval or displeasure. That, that This is telling you and I every detail of your life matters. Every detail. This is a crossroads 
right this moment for all of you. Do you belong to Christ or not? Death is not the great equalizer. Judgment is. God will bring every act of judgment. And the certainty and finality of this judgment gives your life meaning. There's an accountability to God whose ways are often mysterious, but his accountability is right and true, and it's eternal and final, and it puts us in our proper place. It just does. Under God, accountable for how we live. We don't go passing judgment on all of our brothers and sisters in Christ because, as Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. God says, as I live, every knee will bow to me, every tongue confess to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. What I would want to be most concerned about is how I will be evaluated. I know so many Christians who seem to be so miserable in their life. They're so downcast. They feel like they're sinning all the time. They feel like they're failing all the time. And they question if they're saved. And, and they feel fake coming back once again, asking forgiveness. But to me, if you want to please God, that's a sign of health. If you want to confess your sins, that's a sign of health. Yes, sin messes us up. And every one of us needs the word of God and prayer and the family of God to be together with the people of God on the Lord's day. Good job for showing up today and joining us on the live stream. We need in the power of the spirit to grow up. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. Just grow up in Christ in community with other believers. Where there's mutual accountability and support and care. And there will be no growth in your life apart from the word of God in prayer. And remember this, I don't want any of us to confuse mere profession of faith for possession of faith. Jeremiah 7 speaks of this boasting confidence that people had in God, but they were unwilling to obey him. There was no evidence in their life of repentance. See, not everyone who claims to follow Jesus is his. Only those who do the Father's will, who are grateful for salvation by faith alone, by grace through faith. Professing faith doesn't save you. Possessing faith saves you. It's revealed in your life. As James put it, your works will prove that you have Christ's righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Paul talked to the Philippians and said, there are plenty of people shouting out they belong to Jesus, but their gods are their sensual pursuits. And their end is destruction. And by their sinful life, they showed they did not trust in Christ. You know, when you come to this very last verse in Ecclesiastes, somebody said it this way. Everybody and everything is going to get judged. You know what that tells you? Nothing is meaningless. Time and events are not a vapor for God, only for us. Someone said, how can the thought of exhaustive judgment bring pleasure and encouragement to your heart? The reason? It's the gift of God. One other person said this, the final blow, sharp enough to jolt us out of apathy, is that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed. And at the very same time, it transforms us. If God cares this much, nothing can be pointless. This is why the response called for is, is this, delight in the goodness of God. He cares. I think there's great comfort in knowing God cares. God cares so much, he pays attention to everything and will right all wrongs. His sovereign goodness in providentially orchestrating everything because he cares about everything. 
So your life gets transformed in Christ because he cares. You should be able to, to leave today with a, a lighter step and, and a joy in your heart because God cares for me. Jesus said, my joy would be in you that your joy may be made full. God accepts me in Christ. He's going to make all right. He redeems the hideous mess we've made. There is confidence. It's like the beautiful song we sang earlier. Eternal joy is in his hands and all of our tomorrows. What does that do? It spurs you and I on, like Paul, to be urgent in season and out of season and pour ourselves out for souls and finish our race with joy for Christ and exalt him. One of my favorite movies was Gladiator. It came out like 20 years ago. Some of you have seen it, some of you haven't, but Marcus Aurelius is dying at the, very end of the, at the very beginning of the movie. And he says, when a man sees his end, he wants to know that there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? There was once a dream that was Rome. And Maximus says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And Ecclesiastes has been telling us for over a year, eternity matters. And it's not a dream of an earthly city. It's a promise of a heavenly one. At the end of Gladiator, Maximus is dying. And he says this, free my men. Senator Gra Dracus is to be reinstated. There was a dream that was Rome. It shall be realized. These are the wishes of Marcus Aurelius. And then he dies. Marcus Aurelius' daughter says, is Rome worth one good man's life? We believed it once. Make us believe it again. And then she says, he was a soldier of Rome. Honor him. And his friends and his allies pick him up and carry him out of the arena over their heads. Because he, he honored a dead emperor's earthly wish. How much more? How much more? We serve our living Savior's eternal purposes. We pay extreme honor to mankind far too often. We must honor the King of kings and Lord of lords and worship him and obey his word. This is why I would say that Solomon brought the plane in for a perfect landing. Worship him, obey his word, delight in his goodness. That's everyone's ultimate duty. Lord, we thank you and praise you that in light of our sin and your supremacy, the only, really, the only proper stance is to worship you and trust and obey. Your promises are true. We believe it, Lord. We know we have one short life. We want to please you. We want to think much about you. We want to enjoy you fully and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.